Heavenly Father, this is an enormous privilege to be able to really do a deep dive into Scripture, to think through um, what you're saying to us, and we pray that you would be with us, help us to understand, um, bless us in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, here's the vision I have for the class for today, which is I want to very, very quickly wrap up what I didn't get a chance to say last time, which I think I can go through fairly quickly. Uh, we're on the one, two, three, four. Fourth objection, how can love be wrong? Um, so let me just go through that very, very quickly. Hopefully, half the class will be that, and then the other half will be open to any and all questions, and then maybe we could have a, a more open discussion. It's not just me pontificating. Um, but let me just go through... Hello? Uh, there's a handout right there. Right there. Yes. Um, so, objection. How can love be wrong? Right? Love is love. Um, hashtag love wins, right? <laughs> and I think uh, that's very resonant in our culture, right? Which is that the highest principle, the highest law is love. Um, and the, the, the Christian response to that... Um, which doesn't make for a very good hashtag, is um, there is such a thing as disordered love, right? Um, that love can be distorted by sin. Otherwise, how do you distinguish sinful desires from love, right? So the example that I have here is Second uh, Samuel. We'll get to it eventually uh, in the sermon series, uh, but let me read it for you. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, uh, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister, Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So basically, David has uh, multiple wives, right? So Tamar is his half-sister, okay? Um, not his full sister. And then in verse 11, Amnon took hold of Tamar and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Um, and so... Uh, it says very clearly, right, that, Ab, that that Amnon loved Tamar, but that this love was a disordered love, a very self-serving love. Um, and so how do we distinguish between love that is um, God-honoring and love that is, uh, that is twisted or distorted? And the answer is you can't look within and sort of answer that question for yourself, but you have to submit it to, and you have to allow God to guide and shape your uh, your desires and, and, and what you understand to be good and right. And the Bible all the time says we have to have a deep suspicion of what's going on inside of us. That we have to trust God's wisdom. And a lot of times God's wisdom seems contrary to what is right. And our own desires seem right, but... We have to doubt ourselves and we have to trust God. Here's Proverbs 3. I, I don't have it printed for you, but listen. This is a deeply foundational paradigm for understanding your own desires. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths, He will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, right? So, the Bible actually forbids a large spectrum of sexual activity, right? The Bible says no to incest, to polygamy, to polyamory, to prostitution, to adultery, to premarital sex, even to abstinence within marriage. So, for example, if you're married, but you have a sexless marriage, right? uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians says that is also wrong. That's also a very selfish act. Um, and the Bible also says no to homosexuality. So the Bible's view, the Christian view of sex, is very difficult and uncompromising. It can seem, um, but it's actually the deep wisdom of God. Um, so that's it. Let me entertain questions just on this point, because I'm going to open it up for everything else later on. Is there any questions on this question of um, love is love? How can love be wrong? 
I hope I didn't make it sound like I was dismissive. I, I think um, um, the cultural narrative that love is the greatest force in this world is really close to the truth. But it also needs to be shaped by you know, what God says. Yeah. I think... Yeah, I think your the passage that you cited yeah. is good, but then somebody will come back with an objection saying that mm-hmm. that was a one-sided love and in, in that the other person didn't feel the same way back. And I think in right. in the in the um, American culture, it's as long as mutual and consensual, right. then it ought to be okay. Right, so you're right. Uh, the passage I cited, it was Abnon on his own forcing his love on his sister Tamar, right? Um, so I guess the point I'm, I'm trying to make here is that you can't just look at your own love. And ultimately, the, the cultural argument, which is that as long as it's mutual and consensual, that by itself is also insufficient. Um, because love can be disordered. Two people could be disordered, right? Um, there has to be a higher principle. Did you want to follow up on that? Oh, no, I mean, you can't use that because, as you mentioned before, adultery could be consensual. That's true. I didn't think of that. Very good, yeah. But then people might come back and say, well, adultery or betraying betraying a confidence, betraying a, a, a commitment. So I think, like, in the end, yes, homosexuality, there is no true parallel, right? We can't say... So I think it's a very obtuse and very insensitive argument to say, oh, it's just like incest or it's just like bestiality. It's not. It's very different. But it is it is part of the whole spectrum of disordered sexual activity that the Bible describes, right? There's a whole spectrum. And I do think as we understand homosexuality better, deeper, we do understand that it is there is something unique and particularly tragic and poignant about it that deserves special sympathy, special understanding. All right, let me let me press. Did you want to ask a question? I thought I saw your hand, or maybe I saw Jeff's. Oh, yeah. Okay, so uh, objection: the Old Testament condemns homosexuality, yes, but it also condemns eating shellfish, uh, wearing mixed fabrics. Therefore, Christians arbitrarily follow some laws and ignore others. So this is a very very popular argument that you see um, all the time, and <coughs> it's a very I, I think of all the objections, I have to say that this, I have the least patience with this objection um, because it really is an obtuse way of reading the Bible. And you're being purposefully obtuse, I think, because uh, people have always understood that the Old Testament has three types of laws, right? There's the civil law, there's the ceremonial law, and then there's the moral law. The civil law has to do with the nation state of Israel. So, for example, capital punishment uh, um, laws, like, for example, um, an idolater or an adulterer is to be executed. This, these are civil laws. They're temporary because they have to do with Israel as a nation state. We are no longer Israel as a nation state, and therefore, all those laws are, are um, suspended. The ceremonial laws are clean laws, um, and I give you some examples in uh, Leviticus chapter 11. These are what are called the kosher laws, uh, food laws, and um, they are also temporary. I'll get back to that really quick. <coughs> and then finally, we have always understood that there are abiding moral laws that reflect the character of God. Now, the question is, uh, when the Bible says no to homosexuality, is it part of the civil or ceremonial law, or is it part of the moral law? That's a very valid question. And and we would say it's part of the moral law, and I'll get back to that. But I think the response might be, well, how can you even tell? Because if you read the Old Testament, these three laws are never distinguished explicitly. So the Bible never says, by the way, this is a civil law, it's only going to apply to the nation state of Israel, or something like that. In fact, the moral law, the civil law, ceremonial laws are all interwoven, and you can't really tell the difference just like by its placement. And the answer is, um, if you look at Jewish scholarship, if you look at the rabbinic tradition, they have always distinguished these laws, and you can distinguish them by logic and by analysis. And you might say, okay, well, that seems a little bit speculative. Okay, well, we have something else in the New Testament, which is that in the New Testament, they are explicitly distinguished. 
right? So, for example, Mark chapter 7. Let me read it for you. Um, where Jesus says to them, he's talking to the Pharisees, and are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes to a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. Remember the story in Acts chapter 10. Peter has this vision, this dream, of this uh, blanket full of unclean foods, and God says, eat. So the New Testament explicitly says the clean laws, right? It says it in Hebrews, it says it all throughout the Bible, that the clean laws are were always symbolic laws talking about the holiness of God to which Jesus Christ has fulfilled, and therefore they are no longer applicable, Right? Um, and the New Testament explicitly reinforces and repeats the prohibition to homosexuality, right? Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul does it twice in the, in the 1 Timothy and uh, I think 1 Corinthians, right? So this is why we would put homosexuality as part of the moral law, not part of the, these other two laws. And so for people to say, well, it's all arbitrary, you're picking and choosing, um, that, that's a very purposefully obtuse way to read the Bible. Um, so, any questions on that? I feel like that's a very popular argument, but it's not a very intellectually rigorous argument. All right. Uh, last point. Is this the last point? Oh, second to last point. Um, third, uh, the next objection. In the past, Christians supported slavery, miscegenation laws, anti-Semitism, all based on the Bible, and just like then, Christians are on the wrong side of history. So there's this whole idea, right, that there's this great arc, as Martin Luther King uh, Jr. said, right, the arc of history bends towards justice. Uh, well, I forget the exact quote, but, 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 it, but it takes a long time, right? But it's ultimately moving towards greater and greater righteousness and justice, and that um, it used to be the case that we thought negatively of homosexuality, but now we understand it better. We, 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 uh, so many, um, uh, we have so many gay friends, um, and therefore now we understand, right, that that uh, that um, to uh, to have a negative appraisal of it is is bigoted and archaic. The problem with this sort of narrative is that it really misrepresents history. Um, if you look on each of these issues, slavery, misogynation laws, anti-Semitism, the majority of evangelical Christians, this is, this is my argument, it can be disputed, but the majority of evangelical Christians have always understood it correctly that uh, the Bible, the, the thrust of the Bible, and this is very complicated, but the thrust of the Bible is against slavery. right? So let me just cite, for example, when you look at uh, the abolition movement in the United States, this was um, pushed and driven by evangelical Christians. If you look at what happened in uh, the United Kingdom, again, evangelical Christians, and notice that they're not saying, oh, now we know, we're an enlightened species, we have you know, a, a progressive understanding of human nature, now we know, even though the Bible says no to, uh, yes to slavery, now we know that slavery is wrong. How did they come to this understanding that slavery is deeply evil? They came to it by studying the Bible, by going deeper and deeper into the Bible. How did the, the civil rights movement happen, right? Um, I'm reading a very, very interesting book right now called uh, A Stone of Hope. And uh, the author makes this whole point that if you look at um, uh, uh, the civil rights movement as, a, as a, a southern black religious movement, they came to the conclusion that um, segregation is evil and wrong. How did they come to this understanding? By going deeper and deeper into scripture. If you read Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, they're saturated with scripture, right? And and let me say that, yes, in the past, there of course, there have been many Christians who, for example, use the Bible to justify slavery. So one classic example, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, slaves obey your masters, right? And, and so... Um, there have been many examples where Christians sort of took cherry-picked verses from the Bible and said, aha, it supports slavery. But I would argue that the reason why they did that was because of enormous cultural pressure. So uh, a very bad um, um, record for Christians during the pre-Civil War era is that basically almost all Christians in the South supported or at, or at least were silent when it came to slavery. 
Why did that happen? It, it happened across denominations. So it's a very strange thing, right? So Southern Methodists, Southern Presbyterians, Southern Baptists were pro-slavery, but Northern Methodists, Northern Presbyterians, Northern um, um, Christians were against slavery. So how do you explain that? It had nothing to do with denominational differences. It had nothing to do with whether you're progressive or, or conservative. It had a lot to do with enormous cultural pressure. If you lived in the South before the Civil War, right, it was very hard for you to go against slavery. And so you conformed. You were either silent or you found some way to squeeze slavery into, um, chattel southern slavery into scripture. So let me ask this question. On the issue of homosexuality, is that a parallel situation? Are we as evangelical Christians right now under enormous cultural pressure to condemn homosexuality, and it would be scary for us. We would lose our jobs. We would have our churches burned if we spoke the other way. No. I would say it's the opposite situation. There's enormous cultural pressure for us not to condemn homosexuality. And therefore, I think the the analogy isn't quite right. I think a more apt analogy is um, in the earlier part of the 20th century, there was this enormous pressure on evangelical Christians to get rid of supernaturalism. So there was this huge, it's hard for us to imagine this, but there was this huge tidal wave of scholarship pointing to the fact that all the miracles in the Bible are false, clearly, um, like the, the Red Sea crossing, the Exodus, and so forth, um, all the miracles of Jesus. And so people used to say that History is going to judge you as antiquated. You're on the wrong side of history. You're going to become uh, uh, you're going to become uh, outdated, and you better switch over. And the argument used to be: what's redeemable and good about Christianity is not the miracles and supernaturalism, but it's the ethical teachings of Jesus, which is really ironic, right? So they said, let's embrace the sex teachings of Christianity, but get rid of the supernaturalism, and then we'll be able to keep up with modern times. Well, what happened is, so there was this enormous split. Um, between uh, liberal Christianity and then what's called evangelical or, or fundamentalist Christianity. And if you look at the record, liberal Christianity, what's, what's called mainline denominations, they're in massive decline. If you go to a mainline church, more likely than not, you're going to see a bunch of elderly people. All the young people have gone. Why is that? Because people have concluded, if you get rid of the supernaturalism in Christianity and you just support the ethical teachings, why should I even go to church? I could just be ethical without Christ, right? Um, and so it's the supernatural Christianity that has thrived and grown, right? And so I think it's a good lesson to us, which is that we shouldn't try to keep up with the times. Because right now, it's the exact opposite. People don't have, in general, a problem with supernatural elements of Christianity. They have a problem with the sex ethics of Christianity, which is the exact opposite of the 1920s, of the, of the 1940s. And I suspect 50 years from now, 100 years from now, our, 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 um, our future progenitors will look back at our generation and say, to the extent that we've sort of accommodated culture, shake their heads and say, you guys were just basically going with the cultural flow. Christianity is always out of step with the times. It's just out of step with the times on different things at different uh, at different cultural moments, right? And right now, Christianity's sex ethics is absolutely out of step with the times and out of the culture. And that makes it very hard. It makes it, 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 makes it very difficult for us to, to maintain uh, the orthodox classic teaching, but we need to take courage. We need to be compassionate and sympathetic, but we need to stand firm. And, and, and let me just say this one last bit, which is, for example, on the issue of a slavery... Um, the slavery issue is very complicated. You, you cannot reduce it because the Bible has a very complicated view of, sec- of slavery. And here's the quick and dirty answer. The Bible condones, or not condones, the Bible is tolerant of a kind of slavery that happened in the Greco-Roman era, but that slavery was very, very, very different than the chattel slavery that we had in the, the pre-Civil War South. Um, but even that is not a complete story because the whole thrust of scripture uh, goes against slavery. If, if, for example, read the letter to Philemon, Paul absolutely undermines and destroys the foundation of slavery. This is why, by the way, as Christianity spread in the Roman Empire, slavery fell as an institution. 
This is why uh, slavery fell in, uh, in the Christian West. Um, but, let me say this, the Bible has a diversity of views. So you can cherry-pick verses and say, aha, pro-slavery, cherry-pick views and say, aha, against slavery. You cannot do that with homosexuality. There's, as I said, five very explicit passages that talk about homosexuality. There's maybe a dozen that talk indirectly about homosexuality. Every single example is uniformly negative on homosexuality. So it's not a parallel um, argument. Any questions on that? I, I, uh, I, uh, I spent a lot of time, well, because I like history, so that's my own passionate issue. Any questions on that on that point? All right, last one, and then we'll open it up for questions on a on a broader level. Uh, the Bible. So here, um, there's. If you're familiar, um, here there's a. If you're familiar with the debate that's going on right now, um, there's something called a revisionist view. This is the Orthodox view calling it the revisionist view. Um, if, for example, you've read, if you've uh, heard of Matthew Shepard, um, his YouTube video, he wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian. There's a lot, a lot of books right now supporting this, uh, what's called the revisionist view, that says that the Bible, o- yes, the Bible does condemn hom- homosexuality, but only a particular kind or variation of hom- homosexuality that you found in the ancient world, which was exploitative. Right, committed, as Jeff was saying, committed long-term gay relationships are not in mind. And so the implicit in that argument is that committed long-term gay relationships are not found in the ancient world. And therefore, Paul is not condemning that. Paul is not condemning what we see right now in the modern world. He's only condemning um, pederasty. That's uh, man-boy sex. He's condemning uh, prostitution. He's condemning... Um, uh, using your slaves for sex, uh, prostitution, all, so all of that, right, which is really rapid in the ancient world. And, and the, the response that I would have is, first of all, um, it's, that's not correct. Um, the ancient, see, I think this is a little bit of an insulting argument to the ancient people, because it's basically saying ancient people were kind of obtuse, and they, they didn't know that homosexuality can be an orientation. They didn't know that there could be loving, committed, gay relationships. And that is really false. And I actually think, and there's actually a lot of gay advocates that don't like this argument because they, they, they want to redeem all times and all cultures that, that long-term committed gay relationships existed in every, in every time period, which is true. And let me prove it to you. Two classic examples. If any of you have ever studied classical history, you know these two examples. Alexander the Great, which is who is the greatest military masculine superhero of his day. I mean, he there's nobody who comes close to how amazing Alexander the Great is. He had a long-term gay lover called Hephaestion, right? That was his closest, dearest childhood friend. And that was his gay lover. And when Hephaestion died, there was a massive funeral, state funeral, and Alexander the Great was grieving, he was devastated by this. And and here's another example. If you read Homer's Iliad, there's Achilles, right? If you don't know who Achilles is, he was played by Brad Pitt in the movie Troy. So Achilles. Now, Achilles is a mythical figure, but he is the greatest hero in the ancient world. I mean, he's a superstar. I mean, he's like the sword-wielding, you know, incredible warrior. And Achilles had a gay lover, Patroclus, right? If you read the Iliad. I can't remember if that was depicted in the movie Troy, was it? It It was not. That is a bad rendition of the Iliad. (laughs) (laughs) Because Patroclus is a major character. That's his dearest and closest trusted friend, his gay lover. So here you have the two greatest figures in the ancient world, Alexander the Great, Achilles, and they were gay. Or maybe we would say they were bisexual, right? So this is completely false, that the ancient people didn't understand. You know, Wade mentioned this example in his dating sermon. He said there was this myth about how uh, uh, what happened was um, human beings used to be made of two people fused together, two heads, four arms, four legs. Well, what he didn't mention, the myth goes on, 
some of those com- most of those combinations were male female, but some of those combinations were female female male male, and then they were split, and then you're looking for your other half the rest of your life. Why does that myth exist? Because the ancient world understood, hey, there's something innate, there's something so deep that attracts people to the to the same sex. How do we explain that? So they came up with that myth, right? So, so there's that, and. How do we know that Paul is condemning homosexuality as we know it, not just exploitative practices? And here the answer is in Romans 1. If you look at Romans 1, Paul gives us two major clues. In verse 26, right, he talks about lesbianism. He says, women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, right? So he talks about lesbianism. Lesbianism does not fit this model of exploitative, uh, power, uh, gap in power dynamic gay relationships that the revisionist position is proposing, right? It doesn't fit, right? You don't see lesbianism, for example, practiced as a cultic temple practice. It's not some sort of like male patron with his you know, younger subordinate. So there's lesbianism. How do you explain lesbianism that Paul talks about? Number two, here's the second clue. It says in verse 27, right, that men were consumed with passion for one another. So there's mutuality. So it's not that, you know, it's a, an older man with a younger boy. It's not um, a male master with his male slave who are being coerced. Um, but it's mutuality. It's for one another. And then my last point I want to make is that if you read the revisionist arguments, and I've read Matthew Shepard's book, I've read a lot of the chapters and articles on the revisionist position, and this is just my personal opinion, but it's really, really thin exegetically, or like in terms of trying to explain the Bible. They almost never talk about Romans 1, and when they do, I feel like it's very dismissive. Um, because in Romans 1, Paul does What is the argument Paul's making in Romans 1? He doesn't say... Um, homosexuality is bad because it's exploitative. He doesn't say it's bad because, you know, yuck, who wants, who, you know, that's gross. He says it's bad, or it, it, the Bible says no, because it subverts God's intended design in the creation order for male-female marriage, right? And so, how do you get around that? I don't think you can. Um, and ultimately, I think this argument where you basically say, well, the ancient world is so different, is called a cultural distance argument. All cultural distance arguments, I think, you should be very suspicious of, because if you use cultural distance arguments, you can do that with anything and everything. Um, there's, a, there's a school of thought right now that says that the Bible doesn't condemn premarital sex. It only condemns you know, one-night stands or kind of exploited premarital sex, but it doesn't condemn committed long-term premarital sex relations. So that argument could be applied to everything, right? You could say, well, the Bible's not really talking about what we have right now is only talking about what's in the ancient world. So, um, so there's that. I'm done. Uh, let's open up questions. It doesn't just have to be me. You can have a discussion and dialogue. Um, any questions? Yes, Shawin. Um, I have a question on the uh, three passages, the Ephesians 6, 5, and the Exodus, and the, and the Philium. So, Oh yeah, so I listed those to give you a sense of the variety, the diversity of scripture when it comes to um, slavery. So my question is, that's in the New Testament, right? But you said in, in the Old Testament there is ceremonial, civil, and moral laws, yeah. and those don't extend over to the New Testament in terms of... The moral does, but yeah, the other two not. So these three laws, in what context are they justifiable in your views if if the, the the Old Testament categories don't don't translate over to the New Testament, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm having a logic conflict here on how they're allowed. So the the rabbinic tradition, which I uh, agree with, the rabbinic tradition basically says so this is the teaching of the rabbis, which say you have to look at the law, you have to think about it, analyze it, and try to understand the logic behind it to see how and where it applies. The rabbinic tradition really came about because Israel collapsed as a nation. So uh, the temple was destroyed. So they had to figure out which laws can we continue to follow as a Orthodox Jew and which laws, like, you know, we're at a loss. We can't do anything about. So it just required a lot of thinking and a lot of analysis. You can't read the Bible bluntly, superficially. 
you always have to read the Bible with a lot of depth and sensitivity, with a lot of assistance from the New Testament. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, I'll Google this answer. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Um, so I think an argument I've heard is like, well, homosexuality, okay, it is a sin, but we commit sins all the time, and so like, what's the difference? And I, I, I feel like that's an easy counter is like, well, homos- if you're active in homosexuality, it's like unrepentant sin, right? And it's like kind of willing disobedience, mm-hmm. almost. Um, but I'm kind of wondering like what makes, or for people who do affirm homosexuality, it's like some of them don't understand that it's a sin, right? Um, but I think we would still say like they still don't have a proper view of the gospel and things like that. Um, but how do we distinguish like this not understanding that homosexuality is a sin versus like for me, there's sins I'm sure I'm committing that I don't realize I'm committing. Um, is there kind of like a way you would distinguish that? Mm. I think somebody asked this question before, uh, right? Or uh, in a similar train of thought, which is like, do we hold our non-Christian friends to the same standards, right? Mm. I think somebody mentioned that. So I want to throw it open and have a discussion. Feel free if anyone wants to, does anyone have a, a thought or response to that? Well, are you saying non-Christian or are you saying like Christians who haven't like would, realized that like, it's sin yet? Yeah, Chris, Christians who believe that homosexuality is okay. Mm-hmm. So the question is, um, how much can we hold them accountable or how, how, how much can we expect from them? Um, or no, actually my question is more like if they're in that sin and they don't understand it, like so I guess maybe a different question is like, do we believe that they are not saved? Oh. And then and then on the converse it's like, well if we believe they're not saved, what about the people like us who are committing sins without knowing? Sure. Right? Well let me affirm very, very strongly uh-huh. uh our gay friends can absolutely be saved. Uh, so my question isn't can they can or they cannot be saved, but it's like if they are active in it and they're unrepentant of it because they're not aware that it's a sin. Right. Um, so this applies to all sin. Um, all persistent, unrepentant, willful sin will lead to death. Uh, death in this life, meaning destruction of your life, but also death uh, in eternity. So, um, I don't know. I feel like people jump to the, am I going to heaven or hell question too quickly. Like people want to say, are you, so are you saying I'm going to hell? Well, I don't know if you're going to hell. Please don't go to hell. Um, let's talk about, uh, I think, a better discussion. Because I think to some degree, this is beyond my knowledge. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, this is up to God, right? He judges and determines all things. But let's talk about, is your life pleasing to God? Um, are you honoring Christ with your life? Um, so we have this kind of story situation all the time, right? Where we, we go to somebody in the church and we say, you're not living in a way that pleases God. Uh, can you please change? Can you please repent? You're, you're hurting us. You're grieving us. But we don't say, oh, you're going to hell. Um, um, maybe that's way down the line. <laughs> As a final, final, like, oh my gosh, why are you, you know, leaving your wife? You know, um, I don't know if that answers your question. Any, any thoughts on that? I think in a way we just ask, what are the ways that we're not pleasing God? Because we know that all of us are not pleasing God to some extent in some ways and try to change those things to be in, in line with what he's thinking. So, And then ultimately he's the judge and he has to de- make those tough decisions that I don't want to have to make. So. I think there's a, like this might be too broad of an answer, mm-hmm. but um, the, there's a necessary trajectory to the Christian life, which is you're saved, um, and as you grow and learn and fellowship, the Spirit reveals things to you um, through other people, through Scripture, through whatever. And uh, I think ultimately, whether it, take, it takes like six months or like 70 years, the Spirit will reveal things to us that we need to know. Um, so if we truly are saved, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. Um, it's a complicated answer, 
Because I think uh, a genuine, uh, authentic Christian will have persistent, abiding sins that he cannot seem to shake from his life. Um, But the Christian life is a fight, it's a struggle. And there should be um, a transformation in your life. There has to be costly obedience, right? Um, that demonstrates Christ is Lord. You can't. It cannot. Faith cannot be just this empty slogan that you say, or this uh, sinner's prayer that you walk down the aisle and then you're done. You live as you please. Um, and so we're asking of our gay friends, uh, and we're asking of gay Christians or Christians with uh, same-sex attractions. We're asking them something very, very hard, very, very that that that. Uh, that I think deserves a great deal of our sympathy. Because we're asking them for a sexual holiness that goes way beyond what we're asking of heterosexual Christians. Because heterosexual Christians can have always this hope that they will have fulfillment and they will experience this union of, of marriage, right? Even if you're like 50 years old and you've never been married, there's always a possibility of marriage. But we're closing that door for our gay friends and that's... I, as someone who's married, I, I cannot say to um, a gay friend, I know exactly what you're going through, because I don't. Any other questions? That's a great question. Uh, kind of along the lines of what Nate is saying, so would you say, would we say that um, a church that affirms homosexuality, that it's not a sin, have they apostatized as a church? Are they a church, or... <laughs> is that, a, that was a really hard one to. <laughs> yes, that is a great question. So I don't know if you guys heard Harry's question. What about churches that affirm homosexuality? What 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 should we think of them? Um, what do you guys think? <laughs> I have a thought. I have one thought. So I guess the question Harry's asking is: Is that such a serious breach from orthodoxy that we can no longer say that's a legitimate Christian church? Is that a departure from the gospel? I mean, what would the Northern Baptist churches say about the Southern Baptist churches? <laughs> they all split. So I don't. So if you look at the history, so the history of denominations, is that leading up to the Civil War, they all split. So there was the a Southern, Northern Baptist, Southern Baptist. But the Southern Baptist doesn't still condemn slavery. No, of course not. Yeah. Okay. So after the Civil War, they all came to their senses. <laughs> right, so, but, but so, I think the point is that do they have different the differences big enough that they claim the other church not being, you know, Christianity? Yeah, is I, it the difference. So yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but a lot of churches like make those distinctions based on things that probably are unnecessary in my mind. Like, not for people. Yeah. Or I mean, or they're just not central to the gospel. Do we baptize infants or do we baptize believers? I mean, does that really mean somebody's not Christian because they baptize their? But well, we do split denominationally over that. Obviously. Yeah. 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 So. Right, like there's more personal issues, but of like a preference, like or you know, doctrine. They're still supported by the Bible. The whole, but the sum is baptism is a good thing, and you can both con- both denominations can affirm it. Baptism is a good thing. You know, it's a charitable disagreement, yeah. Right. So is homosexuality a charitable disagreement? Homosexuality being a sinful issue, it seems like you're approving a lifestyle that says you can go ahead and, and remain lost in your sin rather than trying to pursue holiness. Um, my, my confusion is whether we as Christians can then, like similar to what you were saying, like can then ask non-Christians to abide by that by making political laws. Um, and where do, you know, do we allow people to want to live the sinful lifestyle? Do we let them? You know? That is a great question too, <laughs> which is what is the intersect between Christian morality and public policy? Um, and that is a very, very complicated question. I don't think there's an easy or quick answer to that. Um, for myself, and I, I, and I want to speak as somebody who's not trying to say this applies to all Christians, 
for myself, I don't think it's a good idea that we have gay marriage in the United States. Simply because I believe that the best way to love our gay friends is not to condone their relationships, right, through law and custom. However, I'm not, personally speaking, it's not a big, big, big issue for me. Um, maybe I'm sort of on the cusp of the millennial generation. So the millennials are more like live and let die, right? Um, why should we make a big fuss? Um, I do think that as a Christian, it is legitimate and I think it's reasonable for a Christian to say to me, you know what? I don't think we should impose Christian morality in our laws, so I support gay marriage. Um, and I would say to that person, you know, I understand, I respect your view on that issue. And, and uh, if they said to me, I think we should have gay marriage in the church, then we'd have to take it outside. And <laughs> um, I don't know, th- th- Elizabeth? Well, I would just say that, like, I mean, I believe, we know, like, God is the king of the universe, not just of the Christians of the universe. Mm. So I think that God's laws are applicable for non-Christians and Christians. I think, right. you know, he is king and he is lord. And These are not like are, um, arbitrary, like, uh, hoop-jumping rules. They're rules for human flourishing, for human... Uh, for our good. For, for our, our good, good, right, yeah. yeah. For our happiness. I think the only problem with this train of thought is that if you allow government, and this is purely political, if you allow government to make rules on morality, then and you open that like ability, then what happens when the next government doesn't agree with your morals and they make rules based off of their morality? I think the safest thing for us to do is to say that government just cannot legislate morality. But there's a level of morality that that everyone, that most people agree on, like murder. Oh yeah, life, <laughs> life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But those That's things it. are all morality too. So it's really deciding what those issues that need to be legislated are, because we can't apply all of God's laws without forcing everyone to be a Christian, right? Which also sure. doesn't seem to work well. So it's really, <laughs> it's it's finding those the balance. Because if you don't have if you don't have God as your head, you actually may be able to make a case for murder in some circumstances. There, like if you have a completely evolutionary viewpoint, there's a lot of things that you could potentially justify. So it's it's where you know, your your worldview, your where you make your morals determine how you decide these issues. Let me throw another wrench into this whole discussion, right? I think partially what's informing this discussion, and there's a split among Christians on this issue, is whether you see Christianity as a minority faith in the United States, or whether you're trying to get back to the old glory days of Christianity being the majority status. And for me, I'm very comfortable, and I feel like I've grown up all my life with Christianity as in the minority status. And when you're a minority, you feel happy to be tolerated. <laughs> um, um, and you, 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 your posture to the larger culture isn't one of coercion or domination because <laughs> you don't have the muscle. You, you are trying to winsomely persuade and gently critique, but also in a very firm way as a friend. Um, and so there's a kind of different <clears throat> expectation. But I think if you're you, you're used to and comfortable being in the majority, and now that majority is slipping away very fast, culture shifting so quick, there's a kind of like maybe a sense of uh, deep discontentment, like what's going on, we're losing our country. Um, I think both views can be, I understand both views, you know, I don't know if that's helpful. (laughs) I was just going to say like, so going on off of uh, uh, the rules or government (coughs) taking over, um, in terms of what they allow in. Yeah. Um, I feel like um, what some Christians may fear or churches may fear is that, um, just like that judge who did not want to do her job because she was against... Kim uh, Davis? Yeah. yeah. Not right name. But, um, so I feel like in the sense that if... Because, if, you know, America's about um, equality. So if the government says this is the new the new law, that you have to... Um, ha- um, um, or if you're going to do marriages, you have to do both. You can't just do one or the other. Sure. Because then that's basically... You know, <coughs> or whatever, sure. what 
call it, then they can also imp uh, impose that to churches and say, if you're not going to follow the rules, yeah. then you are no longer, like, in order to be a church, these are the rules now, the new rules to be a church. Right. And I feel like that could actually eventually happen. Sure. Yes. Um, does anyone have, <laughs> so John just threw out another big, like, dynamite stick. I think, uh, does anyone have thoughts on Ken Davis? Well, not Ken Davis, but just, like, the overall. I think one thing to realize is, um, uh, so when it first came out, I was pretty upset because it's not a, a it's not a slippery slope argument for me. For example, in 50 years, maybe with robots, what about human robots? So, 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 so what I realized was, people uh, as as individuals, we have a say in society, but marriage, morality, these are just terms dictated dictated by the popular vote of the popular opinion. In 50 years, I guarantee you morality will mean something completely different, and that's been on the majority vote. So it, it may, majority, so so whatever, marriage, whatever term there is, murder, whatever, right? So that's determined by society, and that's a dynamic term. It's not, uh, I mean, first question is different, but for if, living society, it's, it's a dynamic social term. And whatever you think it is, it doesn't matter what you think it is. It, it matters what society thinks it is, and that's how it's defined the laws. So you can complain all you want, but it's not up to you. It's a majority vote, and whatever sticks, just sticks. And there's nothing you can do about it. So, so I mean, it's just one of those things where it's just you, you pray that it changes, but if it doesn't change, then you, you, I, tend to not, I tend to not dwell. That's just my opinion. Not up to you. You're not President Obama. You don't tell people what to do. It's 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 a democracy. Everyone has a vote, whether you like it or not. Too bad. It sucks. Mm -hmm. Sorry if that's kind of negative, but that's that's what I think. No boils down to. No, I understand. Any any other thoughts? I think John brings up a good point, but I think as Christians, I think we're always we'll always probably at some point you have to do something that you don't want to do, and maybe at some point then you have to say it. I can't do this, I have to resign. And I think that's what she should have done instead of trying to put up a fight. Because in the corporate world, you're probably going to get fired anyways. You might as well just resign. Because if they, um, <coughs> if for instance you work for Google or like internet companies, maybe somewhere down the line you had an inter interface with pornography producers. What are you going to do about it? And you have no choice, but you can either quit or, or get fired. Right? I don't know what... I just want to. I, I actually don't want to focus on Kim uh, Kim Davis. I, what I was saying is that they may actually set the, the new standard. Like, if you want to be a church, you have to follow these guidelines. If you don't, your church will be disbanded. There will be no more church unless you follow. You know, right? Because because then they're saying, well, okay, everyone can have to follow those rules for churches. They're exceptions to the rule. They don't have to follow that. Well, well, let me speak on that because I do think that's a little bit alarmist. Mm -hmm. um, I do. I do think we're a long way away from the state intruding on matters of the church. I do think um, pastors will not be required to do gay marriages in my lifetime. I, I would find that very difficult. There's an enormous heritage, line, a lineage of laws that would go against that. But uh, the, the issue with Kim Davis is, is what about Christians in the civil and, and you know, secular workplace? Well, I, mean, I agree with Jeff on that. Like She should do her job as her job if she's working in a... Well, let me well let me just interface with that. Um, so I'm sympathetic to that. But I think what Kim Davis is trying to say is she's trying to make a stand for religious liberty for other Christians, so that uh, so that Christians don't necessarily have to be coerced. But it's a tough question. Okay, but that wasn't her problem. If she refused to do it. That's fine. But she refused. She told all of her employees under her that nobody was allowed to do that. Sure. So if I don't want to perform an abortion, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. But I have to refer my patient to a provider who is willing to do an abortion. Sure, sure. Right? I can't just be like, no, I'm not helping you anymore, you evil, sinful person. Right? That's right, like, right, right. No, but this, I think this, this is great because I think all of us face those situations, right, in our workplaces. And if you don't face those situations, you're not opening your eyes. Dan, did you have something to say? Uh, a couple of thoughts. I, I think, I don't know if it was covered, but I feel the sentiment for Kim Davis uh, is rooted in the frustrations in that the political system is very hypocritical, uh, especially with the sense of like Prop 8, for example. Um, that was a law passed, or that was a proposition passed by the people of California. But yet, such as in Kim Davis's case, the higher-ups, they refuse to 
abide by that law. Right, right, right. And thus even told... Like Gavin Newsom and So the idea is, why is there a double standard? And that's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. Although we're under a different standards, of course, as Christians, and therefore um, we can't use that excuse. But I, I think instead of alarmist in terms of what the government will do, what about what the people will do? Going back to his concern about separation of church and state. Yeah. If, if we are a society and we're becoming more of a democracy, even though we're a democratic republic, yeah. if, if we go into the whole democratic method where people are deciding everything, yeah. who is to say that people won't decide and push the government to take away 501c... <laughs> that is very, very real. Yeah, the because may the five hundred one C is happening. There yeah. were people who brought that up, even with schools like Christian schools. They would lose their five hundred one C status if they don't teach yeah. Yeah. that Christian schools. That's a real issue. It may come up within ten years. Yeah, and then I think the same could happen to the churches as well. So, a lot of it has to do with double standards. <laughs> Uh, let me let me close this and say I think it's a great discussion because what 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 we're grappling with as Christians is we're entering more and more of an era in which we are a despised minority as Christians, right? We're out of step with the culture. So how do we live? How do we live in a charming winsome way? Interestingly, the Bible talks about believers mostly in that context. <laughs> it's called, oh my goodness! Um, it's called the Book of Acts. Right? It's called Daniel um, in exile. So let's pray. Great discussion. Heavenly Father, we, <laughs> we are like, um, we're like sh- your sheep. And um, we're, we're bleeding and we're asking for your, the guidance of our shepherd. Help us. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Give us courage. Give us sympathy. Um, help us to be salt and light in this dark and dying world. Help us to love our neighbor. Help us to pray for the flourishing and well-being of our city. Um, Help us not to be alarmed or troubled when we're misunderstood or we're mistreated. Um, We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.